0: The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The views and opinions expressed in the program do not necessarily reflect those of WTVA or its sister station, WLOV. It is not a production of WTVA 9 News. We're going to keep up the uh, physical searches, the prayer chains, the the hopes that we have right now are not gonna stop, they're gonna continue. Um, I got the glasses in the mail Wednesday and that was a very positive thing for me. I'm very feeling positive about it that someone has her and she is safe.
1: I think about the dogs a lot when I think about this case. I imagine being one of the police officers arriving at this house on that day back in 1992 where a little girl has gone missing and there's blood on the wall and on the carpet and the girl's mother tells me she had left the girl at home alone. I imagine the quickening of my heartbeat, knowing it's my duty to act as quickly as possible in finding this child, bringing out the dogs to begin moving around the property in hopes of picking up the scent of this child who is at the least in terrible danger and in a horrible moment realizing the dogs will be of no help. Because they're all flustered and frightened by the heavy winds and rain as the finger of Hurricane Andrew extends to touch Tupelo, Mississippi. And when I think about those dogs... I can't help wondering whether or not the person responsible was clever enough to envision that scene. Smart enough to know that striking during the storm would make those first few hours of searching that much more difficult. Even down to rendering the hounds useless. Maybe. Or maybe it was a coincidence. Of course, there's a lot of apparent coincidence in this tale. A lot of coincidence, a great deal of mysterious behavior... And somewhere within one of the players in this story, a terrifying level of cruelty. Lee Marine Ochi was 13 when she vanished, and storms like Andrew have come and gone in the 25 years since she was last seen. But the dark cloud over her memory remains. What happened to Lee Ochi? Why did her mother move away after her disappearance? Why do people in the city of Tupelo, Mississippi, who knew Lee, contend that it was always obvious that something in her life wasn't right? Why haven't the advancements in technology enabled investigators to use the original evidence to solve this case? This podcast is me looking for answers, and I can tell you now that this road we're about to travel together is long, winding, and to use a tired cliché that is nonetheless applicable... Full of twists and turns, but it's time to find the resolution. 25 years later, it's time to let the dogs loose.
2: missing persons, missing objects, and I use anything and everything in the paranormal. I'm a consultant or an advisor, and I'm just giving you advice. And if you don't like it, you can walk away from it, and if you like it, you can use it for your advantage.
1: Uh, here we go, right? Next thing you know, she'll be talking about touching someone's photo and getting a cold chill.
2: So I take a look at the person in a picture, and I touch it with my hand, and sometimes you'll get the cold chill, that normally means they're deceased. And everything paranormal, I know this sounds goofy, it has a pattern. Just like the stock market, it has a pattern.
1: You know what? Let's not rush to judgment here. The lady speaking is Jeanette Lucas, and she is a part of the Leochi story. Before I explain how, here's a little more about her.
2: I was about seven or eight-ish, and, um, but at the same time, I also had a near-death experience. And um, I literally got to go to heaven and come right back, and um, they told me something special was coming, and it was going to happen at 27, and my whole life was going to change. They said, you'll know at 27. At 27, I had a second near-death experience. I had kidney failure, and I was in the hospital, and it was a mess. I was one of those miracle survivors and um, I got to go to heaven. It felt like days, uh, you know, and they told me they wanted me to find missing persons, especially children.
1: Yeah, that sounds mostly ridiculous. I think most of us will agree on that. Maybe we can write that one off and instead focus on some of her life experience that is actually documented.
2: I had a case in the Caribbean and I got cold chills, but I got a reaction in a part of my tooth, which I thought was really weird. And I thought that, oh, my gosh, this guy's still alive but half dead. And so when I, when I said, go hunting for him, and I selected an area, and I said, I see a hole, and the man fell down it, and he sort of frozen or paralyzed. I had to describe the area. And um, I was in northern Virginia, and he was in the Caribbean, but they did this, the field work. About eight days later, he was not paralyzed anymore, and he crawled out of the hole he fell in and uh, walked down to town and somebody helped him. Over in the Caribbean, it's so darn hot, you you can't hydrate, and that is a dilemma. Every case is different.
1: You're probably not familiar with that case in the Caribbean, but I'll bet you are familiar with this one.
2: You have been called the person who
1: knew where Kaylee Anthony was, is that true?
2: Somebody called me and said, can you work on this missing person case? Mm -hmm. I said, sure, let's take a look and that was not very long after she went missing and I told them where she was and they said, there's no way she's right down the street from the house and I gave all the details. No, she's been taken by someone or abducted or whatever. And I said, no, Um, we're talking druggies and we're talking the mom and we're talking her friends and they pretty much know what's going on. I kept insisting she was right down the street and then eventually they sent me the teddy bear. I I put it by my bed, and I did what's called, um, I created a dream. I call it incubation of a dream. I was told where the body was and how to get there. And I said, you leave the house, and you go to the end of the street and take a right. Go to the end of the street and take a right, and there's a suburban there. Well, little did I know, the street right there where Kaylee was found was called Suburban.
1: We won't really intersect with Jeanette until much later in this series. But it's important for you to know who she is right here at the outset. I'll tell you a little about myself, too. My name is Jason Lee Usry. I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, and I moved around a bit in my career, but eventually wound up working back in Mississippi in the birthplace of Elvis Presley, Tupelo. By the way, if a mention of Mississippi conjures up images of, say, yokels chewing on weeds and kids dressed in flower sacks and like a butter churn, you've got it all wrong. Sure, parts of the state still look like they did a hundred years ago, but Mississippi is living right here in 2017 with everyone else. It's any other micropolitan city. A shopping mall, parks, franchised businesses, two Walmarts, bars, etc. Not long after I moved here and started working for WTVA, I heard about the case of Leochi. Then I read about it. And something about it captured me from the start. I wouldn't figure out exactly what that was for quite some time. I just knew the story had not been thoroughly told and that someone had probably gotten away with something horrible. There were longtime employees in the WTVA newsroom that still remembered covering Lee's disappearance in 1992. When I was invited to a news meeting to discuss potential upcoming special reports, I announced my intention to do this podcast under the banner of WTVA. Now, after that internal announcement, it leaked to one of our competitors who set about creating their own serialized podcast on the topic. Or, I should say, at the least, by bizarre coincidence, this happened. In any case, I am telling you that if Leo Chi's story interests you, there is a completely separate show out there dedicated to the same subject, I actually struggled for several nights on whether or not I should proceed with this version. Ultimately two things helped me make up my mind. One, there are elements uncovered here that you won't find elsewhere. Two, the story is too important to me to leave it be, knowing I could make a difference. Back at that special reports meeting, I did suggest the news team first reopen the case and re-examine it in an SR. Mike, the news director, a big dude who speaks Brooklynese and who you really can't not like, was down with it. Truth is, we almost always agree on stuff, and he assigned the SR to my favorite reporter, Simone Woolridge. She did a fantastic job, as was to be expected, but of course was tied to that tight deadline and working in a format that allowed her finished product to run the length of only a few minutes. Here, we can take our time, and we'll start with who Lee Ochi was. Lee was 13 years old, had blonde hair and hazel eyes. She had a lazy left eye and regularly wore glasses to read. What we know is that she was known as sweet, often restless or obnoxious. She was awkward yet extroverted. She loved talking to adults and like many young girls, loved horses. She lived in and attended school in Tupelo. Many of her classmates avoided or made fun of her. She did not often see her father, who was serving in the military. She lived with her mother, Vicki, and stepfather, Barney, but those two divorced. And by that fateful morning in 1992, the official family was comprised of just Vicki and Lee. Let's travel back to that morning to set the scene I asked one of my co-workers to go back there in his mind. See, meteorologist John Delusic, I call him Johnny D, is basically Google with legs. He's what we Gen X and overs call a walking encyclopedia. Pretty much anything he reads or experiences, he remembers. It's been to, uh, over 25 years now, but I uh, do recall, we were expecting Andrew, and expecting Andrew for a couple of days at least. Expecting Andrew a couple days at least. Enough time to plot something heinous? But did people think the hurricane would heavily impact Tupelo? People were worried, yes. They don't worry that we're going to get the brunt of the hurricane. They worry about uh, what kind of after effects we would get and how strong those wind gusts would be and, and, and how much rain we'd get. I asked Johnny D. what we would have seen and felt if we stepped out Lee's front door that day. It was a, I mean, as expected, hurricanes usually bring in those thicker... Uglier clouds. It's just a bunch of thick moisture. The 27th was very, very rainy. Very just, just uh, the best way to describe it would be like a dank. And it's a strange word, but dank is I've always heard people say uh, dank, you know, where it's just ugly and it's just rainy and dark and it was it was just it it just lacked color. So on that dank August morning, Tupelo police got a call from Vicky Yarborough formerly Vicki Ochi, reporting that she couldn't find her daughter.
3: I was a lieutenant with uh, our detectives division at the time uh, when this actually happened.
1: Previously, I mentioned reporter Simone Woolridge doing a two-part news piece on Lee for WTVA 9 News. At that time, several months ago, she interviewed current chief of police in Tupelo, Bart Agiri.
3: Once we got into the house, uh, the thing that I did notice uh, right off the bat, that there was no sign of any forced entry. Uh, there was some blood evidence that uh, was located inside the house. Uh, the house was not in any kind of disarray.
1: Aguirre told Mo the house was in order but the blood was on the door facing and on the carpet. So, how much blood are we talking about here?
3: We couldn't really tell, uh, you know, a whole lot about the amount of blood that was uh, spilled there at the scene or not, or whether or not that was even enough blood uh, there to even cause a a fatal wound. So we did take some blood samples. Uh, We searched the house over. For uh, any physical evidence, uh, the uh, mother, uh, Vicki Felton, uh, or Yarborough at the time, uh, was leading us around and showing us some uh, areas of concern.
1: Vicky told then-Detective Aguirre and his colleagues that this was the first time she had ever left her daughter at home alone. After driving to work, seeing the effects of Hurricane Andrew, and knowingly had a heightened fear of bad weather, Vicky said, she decided to call home and check on her girl, but got no answer. Then worriedly drove home, and found that her daughter was missing.
3: Vicky did show us where the nightgown that she was wearing, Lee was wearing when she uh, that morning, was in the laundry basket, and that uh, nightgown had uh, bloodstains on it.
1: Remember that nightgown later.
3: The uh, nightgown was collected and preserved uh, as evidence.
1: It was also noted that Lee had only recently become a teenager.
3: You know, she had just had a birthday, and she say, was telling us that uh, Lee had uh, some new um, bra and panties that she had gotten for her birthday. Those were missing a pair of blue jeans and a, and a shirt.
1: As I detailed at the top of the episode, bloodhounds that were brought onto the scene to look for Lee were ineffective as they were completely distracted by the bad weather and the human investigators weren't turning up anything either. Hours turned into days.
3: The FBI had also come in on the case to help us uh, on the investigation because um, it involved a, um, a child uh, under the age of uh, 15, and uh, that could possibly have, you know, she could have been abducted and carried across state lines.
1: Vicki and Lee's stepfather, Barney, both spoke to the media.
0: Please go out and search your property. Um, have your neighbors and friends go search their property so that we can find my daughter.
3: Lee, if you're out there and you can see this, please contact us no matter what. Just please let us know if you're all
1: right. Search efforts picked up quite a bit once Lee's birth father arrived on the scene.
3: The father of Lee Ochi was uh, serving in the military at the time, Uh, Donald Ochi, and uh, he came into town. He helped uh, do some of the search for, for her. We like to say that if somebody's got her, all I got is my mortgage money, but I'll give it to him if she get, they give her back. His biggest uh, contribution to uh, the investigation was providing a lot of manpower and a lot of time and, you know, going out and organizing uh, search parties and everything, looking in, in, in all these different areas and fields and wooded areas, uh, you know, for uh, his little girl. Uh, he would oftentimes just call to see what the progress of the case was, you know, where are we at on the case or are we getting any closer to, you know, solving this case. Um, you know, we always had to tell him the same thing over again, you know, we just, you know, still looking.
0: Three teams of volunteers combed the wooded area between Beach Springs Road and the Natchez Trace this afternoon. Searchers found debris and a few dead animals, but no sign of the missing girl. People came from all over North Mississippi to assist investigators, and they say they'll continue to join search efforts until Leochi is found.
2: It doesn't discourage me at all. I would look and
0: look as long as I can. You know, as long as I'm physically able, I'm going to look. How do you feel about joining these search efforts? Do you think that, that, hey, today could be the day we might find the little
3: girl? Well, there's one thing for sure. There's nothing you can do wrong. If, if you do anything, it's got to be right. There'd be no wrong way to do anything. Until we find something, that are guessing. And we're going to keep trying until we do. Another
0: search team from Eupora brought their specially trained Rottweiler to Tupelo, Their efforts were concentrated near Ochi's Tupelo residence. One family member arriving from St. Louis today says the chances of finding the 13-year-old alive are slim.
2: Well, we're just hoping we find her. I mean, it's pretty optimistic now, it's been so long.
1: Just when it appeared Tupelo would never see any sign of Lee Ochi again, a disturbing development. An ominous package was shipped to Lee's home. Inside the mailbox, inside an anonymous envelope, Lee Ochi's reading glasses. There was no demand for ransom, no note, nothing further indicating violence visible on the glasses. Was this a sadistic killer seeking attention or taunting the victim's family? Was it a sign of remorse? Was it someone letting parents know their girl was still alive?
0: Does the fact that the eyeglasses were mailed to the family yesterday indicate to the police department that she's still alive?
1: No, it doesn't Uh, either way. uh, Just simply because we have eyeglasses doesn't mean anything one way or the other. As difference-making as the event might seem, the discovery of the glasses led nowhere. One quiet but popular theory among North Mississippians was that the glasses were a stunt executed by Lee's killer to throw off investigators. Many around Tupelo theorized that Lee's killer was the person who was supposed to be taking care of her. Whether privately or publicly, loudly or in whispered conversations, the talk was that the only person who really knew what happened to Lee was her mother, Vicki.
0: Someone has her, and I think that they want to let her go, but they're scared, or, or they don't know how to do it now, or something. They came on foot, on horseback, and on wheels. Some.
1: episode I'll tell you why so many who did not know the family and so many who did point in that direction what was she what was Vicky like back then how would you
2: describe her she was okay I mean ended up married 13
1: the search for Lee Ochi is produced and edited by me, Jason Lee Ustry. It is a production of WTVA Podcasts. You can help the show by subscribing on iTunes, and in particular, by leaving a review or a rating. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon.